Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I am here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We have a full crew today and a lot to talk about. Joanna is freshly back from Texas for a ATX festival. Richard is freshly back from some Tony's after parties. Mike has gone down the rabbit hole with Bob Dylan in a documentary that's on Netflix. Uh, and in the back half of the episode, we're going to have an interview that Joanna did with Manny Jacinto of The Good Place and uh, also talking about how that show is ending, sadly. But first, we're still in the thick of Emmy season. The Emmy ballots the, for nominations have actually gone out. So all of these conversations we've been having with people about Emmy seasons, it's Time to vote. If you're listening and you're an Emmy voter, go fill out your ballot. Uh, and Joanna, you looked through specifically what they were submitting for Game of Thrones nominations, which obviously there's we're all expecting lots of nominations for Game of Thrones, but there's going to be some surprises in what actually is eligible, right? Yeah, I um, I stayed on brand and dug into the Game of Thrones nominations. No, um, people might not know how certain series submit certain things and there's sort of like an internal agreement within each series about how they're going to submit things. So if you submit episodes, individual episodes for the directing category, or you submit individual episodes for the writing category, each individual writer can submit their own episode. They're technically allowed to do that, but sometimes there are, you know, like just sort of unspoken or spoken rules within the show of how they go about doing it strategically. So Game of Thrones decided in season two, after season two to stop submitting multiple episodes. And like, you know, people who've been watching Emmys for years will remember there were years when Mad Men had like four scripts nominated, you know, and we would be like, Matthew Weiner again, Matthew Weiner and again, Matthew Weiner again. Um, but Thrones only does one to sort of just enhance their, uh, you know, um, chances. So they're not so, competing against themselves when the nominations come out. Exactly. So this year they've decided to submit the finale Iron Throne. And, and it is always an episode written by the showrunner. Weiss and Benioff, which I guess is their, you know, 
Um, their choice. So they decided to submit the finale Iron Throne uh, for the writing, and that's it. That's all they're submitting in the writing category. And writing is is sort of not always been their easiest category to win. Um, and then in directing, they're submitting one episode per director. There's only three directors who work this season. And so they're submitting The Long Night, which is that battle episode that was sort of controversial with a Is It Too Dark to See for Miguel Sapochnik. They're submitting The Last of the Starks, which is episode four, which which is where the dragon died and there was a coffee cup, you might remember, that was directed by David Nutter. And then the finale, uh, directed by Weiss and Benioff. And these are surprising to me. The only one that's surprising to me is the David Nutter one, because David Nutter also directed the first and the second episode. And the second episode, this is my bias like shining through, but the second episode I think is considered the best of the season by a lot of people. what the second episode is. The second episode is called A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, and it's where it's the calm before the storm. It's where Bran gets knighted. It's where everyone sits around the fire. They're singing. There's Theon and Sansa reuniting, all of that. So long story short, this is an Emmy submission decision that leaves out that episode entirely, um, which has confused a lot of people. But, you know, if the strategy is, you know, we talk about this a lot with the Oscars, where sometimes we think in some categories the most something like the most editing or the most sound design or whatever is something we think the voters might go for. Maybe it's the most directing, like maybe you don't want to put a quiet episode up against spectacle episodes. And so maybe David Nutter felt like the one he did where a dragon died, even though there's a coffee cup in it was a better choice than this quieter one um, by the fireside. Um, well, so also I don't the know. other thing like, is that yeah. those First two episodes are good, but they're setup episodes. I mean, the first one is is total table setting, and the second one is like even more table setting. It's it's good, and you know it's a great script by Brian Cogman. But I could see, look, none of them think they made a bad final season, right? They no, <laughs> like, yeah. So, but I I mean the coffee cup thing is tough. <laughs> That's a tough thing I to just, get over. I just think, I just think directorially, like uh, I think what he, what David Nutter did with the Night of the Seven Kingdoms, even though it's a place setting episode, there's so much he did to draw out so much emotion, and he famously does a lot of coverage. So there's all this cover, you know. There's just a lot of the director's hand in that episode. But you're right; it's not like a big splashy, a dragon dies for inexplicable reasons episode, which is what episode four is. So like, you know, I, I but, on the but one also, hand, what I about the long yeah. night? The, the yeah, that's that's submitted for directing. Right. Miguel but not the Battling just, King's Landing, but, right? But not the but not the bells. Which you know, I, if I were him, I would have picked the bells over the Long Night because I think the bells, uh, the way it pairs action with um, sort of the emotional reactions on the ground, was more effective. But you know, I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, there's a lot of brains at work behind the submission process um, and I'm sure they're still going to win like a mountain of awards Um, I just I know they're vulnerable in the writing category I think if they had submitted a Night of the Seven Kingdoms they might have had a chance of winning but I also understand if you're Weiss and Bunny if you're like no it's our it's our episode that's going to go in so that's you know that's the choices that were made well, it's just it's a it's a funny little illustration of the difference between the way that fans process something and the way the creators do necessarily. You know, yeah. like everyone on Twitter is like, "How did they 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 didn't submit this episode for best writing? It's clearly the best episode." And you know, whatever the sort of strategy behind this the, the scenes is, the the sort of overt reality is like Weiss and Benioff and whoever else just think about the show differently. You know, right? Um, and there, and that disconnect, I think. Is well, and forever. voters probably think maybe closer to Weiss and Benioff than right. to fans because they do this for a living, right? right? I mean, who knows? 
but I think directorially, absolutely, I agree. I think I think the ambition of some of these big spectacle heavy episodes is going to be rewarded. Like the the what Game of Thrones did in terms of bringing spectacle in and cinema and ambition to television in its final season. Um, and series long is is something I think the Emmy voters are going to reward. The writing might be tougher, a tougher win for them, honestly, because they you know they haven't won for a ton of writing. So you know, I think we'll the see. writing of this whole season was yeah. notably, or almost the whole season was notably worse than it used to be. I mean, who who had that thing, that thing on Twitter of like the drawing that gets worse and worse yeah. over time. You know, oh, the horse. The horse, yeah, 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 <laughs> the yeah. horse meme. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the comforting thing for their chances regardless is that they're only competing with 164 other drama series that are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> eligible yeah. for uh, yeah. Emmys this year. Well, let's stick around in the world of television probably to uh, catch up with Joanna on the ATX Festival, which you just returned from. Joanna, do you live part-time in Austin at this point? Like between yes. this and South By, you just kind of have a, have a you know, zip code there. I have a lovely condo by the river. No, um, <laughs> yeah, the ATX Festival. See, so, so I'm a little, I'm slightly reluctant to talk about it too much because it still feels like this kind of well-kept secret. Um, it's it's a wonderful television festival that takes place every uh, June in Austin. This is eighth year. Um, it's run by two women who used to be assistants and were just like, hey, what if we did like a big celebration of TV instead? And it is crazy the amount of talent that they get and the amount of like relaxed vibe that they still achieve down there in Texas, where you can just sort of like scroll, stroll into a screening without having to wait in line for hours and hours and hours. But the theaters are full. It's like the perfectly calibrated thing. And then there's a bar in the hotel where every night everyone goes. So you'll see all these showrunners you recognize, cast members you recognize. They're doing TV karaoke. They're doing TV trivia. It's They call it TV camp for grownups, but it's just like, it's this great vibe. And, and there's some stories that I, you know, we, we uh, co-sponsored, co-hosted the opening night event, which was a screening of the new um, HBO series Euphoria, and then the after party. Um, the panel was moderated by our lovely colleague, Sonia Sarai. She did a bang-up job. This is Zendaya's sort of big entree. You know, she's done a couple grown-up projects, but this is her big entree into the, like, I am definitely doing adult content now for HBO, because it's a very, it's explores uh, you know, no, hold, no holds barred look at drug use and... It's like um, modern-day kids, right? Yeah, drug use and the sex lives of teens. Um, and so what was interesting in that opening night is that there were a lot of Zendaya fans in the audience and this little girl got up on the mic and she was like, Zendaya, to ask her a question. And Zendaya almost fell off her chair because she was like, no, I don't. Why did you watch this episode? <laughs> Um, but um, but the episode was incredible. It was incredible to see it on the big screen. Sam Levinson, Barry Levinson's son, is sort of the creator, uh, showrunner, and he like put all of his. It's like semi autobiographical, based on this Israeli show, but he put like a lot of himself into it. So it just felt really personal, very cinematic and beautiful, and a really cool way to watch it uh, with everyone to see it on the big screen there. But then you know, like it was so interesting because. Um, the, the quote-unquote closing night event, which takes place the night before it ends, but whatever, um, is was for the Showtime series City on the Hill, which has Kevin Bacon in it. And I was like, oh, because Kevin Bacon was coming for that, 
that's why they had a tremors panel earlier in the evening because there was this pilot that didn't go anywhere for a, 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 which I obviously went to because tremors is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and, and then I found it was the verse that Kevin wanted to come to talk about this tremors pilot. And then he was like, okay, I'll do this. Like my new showtime series (laughs) while I'm here. Uh, so yeah, these are just like the, the interesting priorities. I got to moderate a reunion of the FX series league, the league, which had, you know, all these great comedians, Paul Shear, Nick Kroll, Jason Mendoza, Katie Asselton, um, just riffing. Like I might as well not have been there on the stage. It was like everyone was in stitches the whole time. It was amazing. Um, and then there's just like cool events. It's a, it's, it's both a celebration of television and then sort of this opportunity for a lot of people who want to get into television to come to learn things from panels, to interact with showrunners, to pitch. Um, there, there's there's one event that's like a pitch event, so you pitch your idea for a TV show and stuff like that. So it's just um, it's really fantastic. And and one thing that I the most interesting thing that I learned is that in these informal sort of gatherings that happen late at night, and I'm sure this is true of a lot of a lot of festivals but maybe even more intimately so at ATX. Um, I met a group of young women who are all writer, who are now all in writers' rooms, all writers' assistants, who met at ATX years ago, and they come back every year, and they've just sort of they're checking in with each other as they work their way up the ladder, and it just seems like. It's a very youth-focused festival, very female-focused festival, and it's an interesting way to see how maybe slowly but surely the the landscape of who gets to make television is being changed, um, you know, sort of from within. So I don't know. It was, it was a really fascinating, lovely event. Like I said, I'm reluctant to flog it too hard because I don't want it to get enormous and then <laughs> you don't want like it to be the next the South by. <laughs> well, I was talking to Janet Pearson who runs South by, and she's like, I'm a little jealous of the size you know she loves her festival of course but like she's like I'm a little jealous of the size of this festival it feels like the perfect the perfect size where you know it's big enough that you all the talent you want to get you know probably still comes but small enough that it feels manageable uh in downtown Austin so it's really really great time thanks for sending me Mike all right (laughs) thanks for going Oh, is there anything that you saw besides euphoria that we should be looking out for as we uh you know look past Emmy season to TV we can watch soon I think Sitting on the Hill is something uh, to check out on Showtime as sort of a, you know, like a, a Boston, a Dan Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter moderated that panel. And I was I was talking to him before and he's like, he's like, should I just do my Boston accent the whole time? And I really wish Richard had been there to do a, a classic. Is that my daughter in there? Sort of a thing. <laughs> well, there but, will be a uh, review of that show uh, written by me up on the site by the time this episode is live. So. In a phonetic Boston accent. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. okay Richard let's hear about your recent adventures Mm. Um, you watched the Tony Awards which I did as well on Sunday night on CBS and then actually went to an after party for the Tonys afterwards Um, but maybe we should start first by talking about the broadcast itself the ratings came in uh, what's a pretty familiar story for any awards show now they were a record low um, but the Tony Awards have always kind of had lower ratings than the the bigger ones because of the nature of Broadway Um, what did you just think about the Tony Awards as a show well, it was a weird year. It's an, it's, it was yet another year where they're not going to broadcast certain categories because, you know, in the interest of time. So you didn't get, you saw like a tiny little snippet of Bob Mackie winning best costume design for the share show. And like, Bob Mackie's a legend. We should be able to see his whole speech, especially when you have the host, James Corden, constantly doing bits and songs and routines throughout the evening that I didn't think were very good. And you're like, okay, this is like, I know we need some of that, but it just felt like a very distracted show like its priorities were in a weird place 
And I think that that combined with the fact that there just wasn't really a huge hit musical this season. I mean, Hades Town, which won, like, is big in New York theater world, but, like, it's not Hamilton. It's not something that people from all over the country will tune into to watch something from. So I think those two factors, I think, kind of a weak host and um, not a weak crop of nominees, but just a little bit less flashy, conspired to make it. I mean, under six million people on CBS on Sunday night. Like, that is... (laughs) And you wonder why, like, what the incentive for them to keep airing it is. I mean, they have more targeted ads. I mean, I was making a joke to my friend watching the broadcast. I was like, every single ad has been for gay people or old people. <laughs> like, oh, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe they're like, okay, we'll still get that niche ad money. But um, I think the awards, uh, well, they'll be buoyed next year because there'll be Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster in the music band, which will just, like, eat the world. Um, so maybe the, the, a brighter future awaits. But um, there was something of an existential crisis kind of hanging around the show this year. Well, was it a big commercial for James Gordon? Like, his opening number was essentially a, a commercial for his show, you know, yeah. in certain ways. <laughs> yeah, which I didn't, you know, I, I get, like, it's synergy, it's in-brand, it's, it's all on the same network. But, like, something about it felt extra synthetic this time around. Um, you know, he also did stuff that, like, you know, he went through to various famous people in the audience who were nominated and was like, show us what your face will be if you lose. And, you know, and it's like, that joke has been made at every award show for the past 20 years, it feels like. Like, let's right. do something a little new. Um, and then his opening number was him singing largely about television, which was like sort of, well, not largely, but there was a section where he just listed a whole, you know, slew of TV shows. So I don't know. It just felt strange in, in its advertisement for James Corden uh, and his show. And maybe a little bit like it should have been more focused on the on the, on the theater of it all. So I turned it on late and kind of tuned in just in time to see Rachel Chavkin, who was the one woman nominated for Best Director of a Musical, and she won. Uh, and she gave this speech that wasn't just like politically minded and about like having more women involved in the theater, but it was really long, and the orchestra didn't, didn't play her off because mm. she just kept talking. And like I get that the pacing of the Tonys can, you know, be slower because they expect fewer people to watch, but it did feel like a reminder to me to you know Bob Mackie being uh, not televised aside, like they do let the people talk a little bit more. It is more of an award show that's about giving the awards and then about the performances, which obviously are kind of superior to anything the Oscars can do because these are people who perform on stage. Mm-hmm. So even though like the the host of it aside, it did remind me of the things that I think are good in award shows, um, just mostly just letting people talk. Well, that's the thing. It's like I, I wish that um, the Tonys this year and, you know, other award shows would just give a little more time for spontaneity, for breathing room, you know, like just allow for that. Don't pack it so tightly with bits and, and stuff that you think – I mean, I guess the thinking is essentially it'll go viral. It'll be like Ellen's selfie at the Oscars or whatever. Which um, was like five years ago. Which is, yeah, it was a while ago now. And, um, you know, I, I think that when you see something like on the Emmys, when the the, produ- the director of like the Oscars show or whatever, like proposed to his girlfriend and, you know, crazy speeches. And, you know, I just think that removing any possibility for something weird and unexpected makes for a pretty staid award show. And I think the Tonys for a while has been able to coast on the fact that, like you said, Katie, they have these live performances, which are great. But like in a year when they're, the musicals aren't like as thrilling as they have been in the past, you can't really just rely on, on those musical performances. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not surprised that it had such low ratings. Also, like in the heyday of the Tonys, yeah. right? Which I don't know when that would have been, but like a while the ago. 70s? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like... Broadway shows were, you know, if you wanted to see theater, like you had to go to Broadway and you would go see things didn't run for like 25 years and they didn't tour and they didn't become giant like, you know, tourist factories or whatever. Um, 
And so you would actually be interested, like, what are the good new musicals? Whereas now, if you want, like, either just let it become, it just feels like the, the theater, like everything, has got broken into, like, an elite side and a mass side. And if the elite side is going to give itself awards based on just only talking about, you know, new, good, artistically <laughs> smart musicals, then of course no one's going to watch. No one in the rest of the country. Right. Um, they can't see these things. They wouldn't see them anyway. They, they'll never see them. So either you just have to say like that's what this is now, or you'd have to. I think it's kind of like the popular Oscar debate that where I was the only asshole on one, the other side of it. But it's like if you're going to try to say, hey, we want more people to watch this, then I think you have to start thinking about how do you find a way to incorporate the things tourists actually go to, right. the, maybe even the touring productions of these things, which are very professional now and are like, you know, like there's a whole bigger world of theater in the U.S. that's not really reflected in the Tonys, well, is yeah. it? No, maybe I mean, I'm wrong. That's the odd thing is that they, they said during the show, I forget if it was highest attendance or highest box office but it's the biggest year that Broadway's ever had right and yet it's the it's the least watched Tonys they've ever had you know so there's wow. a weird right. disconnect but you have something like To Kill a Mockingbird doing so well Hamilton and the Harry Potter show uh, The Cursed Child well The Cursed Child was last year so they weren't going to have anything involving that at this year's broadcast you know Hamilton right. obviously is a few years old and To Kill a Mockingbird wasn't nominated for best play and what were they going to do anyway have Jeff Daniels do a monologue on stage maybe but I don't know that people really care about that so I think you're right, right Mike that like trying to find a way I think just maybe to maybe even like the Emmys Emmys keeps giving popular shows awards they don't have to be in their first I mean obviously it's different because you, ha- yeah. you have new TV coming out but in you an could old show still have the older shows perform or maybe I don't know. Yeah. You know, or like, who are the good actors in Hamilton now? Like, is right. there a way to have a category for that? You know, did somebody sure. just start this year and they're actually amazing? I don't know. Like, best I, replacement or whatever. I, yeah. Sounds sad, doesn't it? But I don't know. <laughs> oh, I think the, I think actors would be thrilled about that. You know, right? You yeah. Know? The thing that did go viral was the Billy Porter performing during the commercial break, uh, which did wind up airing on Corden, which I think maybe argues to your point, Joanna, that it's an advertisement for James Corden's show. But isn't that kind of like the best indication of what's going wrong, that the most exciting thing was what didn't make it on the air? Yeah. I mean, look, you have you have such a dynamo in Billy Porter. You know, people love his red carpet looks. They love him on Pose. They loved him in Kinky Boots, which he won a Tony for. And you have him at this show, and you have James Corden doing at least two musical numbers, and Billy Porter gets to sing during the commercial break. It's like, that's moronic. <laughs> it's like, that's utilize ultimate, people. That is like, incredibly you know, dumb. you have this incredible pool of talent, and, you know, uh, think what anyone else will about James Corden. I just find him completely charmless, and I just, I just don't, like, you know, we, okay, one song at the opening, fine, it's the Tonys. But then we have another bit where they're in a bathroom singing a, a parody of a song for a show that barely got nominated that no one really knew called Be More Chill. It was just like, and then like having this self-referential thing with, with like past Tony's host, it was like, guys, like this is not what is exciting for people. Like, it felt very much written for James Corden and not for like theater goers. And yeah, so the Billy Porter thing is a perfect example of that. It's like that—that's a missed opportunity, <laughs> completely. Well, we should—we like- uh, should use this opportunity to plug the piece you wrote on Billy Porter for the Emmys issue. Uh, you got to have like it was a short piece, but you had this great lunch with him. I was very jealous. Oh yeah, he's amazing, and the real reason for that existing is these incredible photos that, um, yeah, that they're on, they're online now. But you know, maybe maybe lessons will be learned. Uh, you know, I, again, I think the Hugh Jackman of it all next year could really spice things up. Hopefully, um, but you know, there were some great winners. I'm, you know, I think the the, the, the little gold men bump helped at least Celia Keenan Bolger of to hey. win for To Kill a Mockingbird, if not her co-star Gideon Glick, who did not win. But um, you know, it was good that he got the nomination. You know, it was nice to see Elaine May win, you know, um, after such a long and varied and kind of strange career. And, you know, someone like Santino Fontana, who's like been a 
musical theater staple for the past yes. I don't know, 15 years who left a, te- a successful television show because he missed doing theater. You know, um, you know, there were there were there were plenty of reasons to be happy despite, you know, the boys in the band winning best play revival or whatever. <laughs> grumble, <laughs> grumble. This hey, is that the was year some famous that people. I think maybe this is the year where just the host, the concept of a host can just die. Well, yeah, because now Ooh. the Oscars are like, we loved not having a host. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do everything we can to not do that Who again. Who needs hosts? Or just get someone who's a little bit more like now. Just and get LL Cool J to say a word or two there you and go. keep <laughs> it moving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, wait, I, at this point, we still don't know an Emmy's host, so it's possible that there won't be a host for the Emmys. No, I talked to you guys about that. I'm going to be away for a couple hey. of That'd be great. You'd be a good host. <laughs> yeah. And hire you in a heartbeat. And I think some of that mood uh, of a little bit like of anti-climax was carried through. I went to like the big after party um, at the Carlisle Hotel that the O&M, the, the publicity company, hosts. And it was a f- it's a fabulous party. It's always nice. I don't mean to poop, you know, be down on the event, but just the energy in the room was a little bit stayed. And like because I had been there a couple years ago and in, within the span of 20 minutes, I met Sally Field. Glenn Close and Bette Midler. And it was like, you can't really recreate that. But, you know, I got to uh, to see Laurie Metcalf in, all her, in a very beautiful white dress, very daringly drinking a huge glass of red wine. I was like, that <laughs> that, 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 that uh, suggests a confidence that uh, we should all aspire to. Um, <laughs> but most of the, the big famous people, uh, besides Darren Chris, who did play, I'm, I'm told, played piano at 3 a.m. I was not there uh, any anymore. I was responsible and was home. But um, the, most of them went up to this like suite that the hotel has um, during the party. And I was not granted access to that. So who knows? Maybe mm. there was something really fabulous happening up there. Next year. James yeah. Corden was being carried around on a throne by <laughs> was, a group of... <laughs> he was performing more musical numbers. Yeah, yeah. chorus yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, so Mike, your byline is on VanityFair.com this week, which is extremely exciting. And uh, it really it takes a true legend to get you to write something. And, and that legend this week was Bob Dylan. You went and wrestled with Bob Dylan and Martin Scorsese this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wrestle, wrestle indeed. Wrestle is the word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. I'm a big fan of his 1975 tour, Rolling Thunder, which is the subject of this new documentary that Martin Scorsese did. One of the many drafts of this piece that I was struggling with over the weekend um, started where I was saying, like, on the scale, I think I'm a 7 out of 10 of a Dylan fan, which is, like, pretty serious. But you know that there are people who, like, that it's a it's a um, hockey stick curve. And... Yeah, the the people who are the hardcore Dylan fans are terrifying in their precision. Yeah, and so this film was actually almost perfectly designed to, like, to just destroy the mind of a seven. You know, because if you were a five or below, you wouldn't even care about it. And if you were an eight or above, you would have realized what's happening in the film, which is that there's this whole prank element. There are four jokers, as Glenn Kenny uh, was putting it on Twitter today, in the film that are like fake characters or people just lying about their experiences. And I don't know why they they decided to do that, but clearly, you know, Scorsese and Dylan together cooked it up. It's very Dylan to, um, you know, to sort of lie for fun and obscure his own story and try and mess with everybody and, 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 so it's interesting. I mean, I think the film is super interesting. The footage, uh, the live performances are incredible. It really is some of the best music that he ever created and, and, and uh, some of the best live performances. 
And I'm curious, you know, as someone who didn't catch on until later, what was happening with these with these sort of invented sequences? Uh, I'm curious what people going into it with that knowledge will will think. You know, will they think, oh, this is really interesting and shedding d- different light on Bob's story, and I can't really tell when I'm being messed with, or will they think this would have been a really great one hour and fifty minute tour documentary instead of two hour and twenty minute thing with a bunch of like weird fake stuff in it um but uh and to be clear this is on netflix uh it's as coming out on netflix on wednesday i'm sure i imagine it would be in the d- documentary hunt um for emmys and oscars i don't no, know no, i don't know yeah, how this yeah, even yeah, works anymore yeah. um but it's marty it's bobby it's you know joan baez it's i mean <laughs> the stuff that's happening in the film that is that is you know well, the other the other issue that's interesting is that a lot of the footage, even the old footage, was shot for this crazy four-hour art movie that Bob was making called Ronaldo and Clara. That's effectively unwatchable, and so you know my my review or whatever you want to call it article about this starts with a seemingly very candid, heartbreaking kind of uh, you know exchange between Bob and Joan Baez um, that possibly was scripted or at least improvised in parts even though they're playing themselves so like you really don't know what the hell is going on most of the time except when like bob is on stage playing (laughs) that's what you're like this is real um but uh (laughs) but that's interesting that's an interesting thing to do to everybody it's a little bit of a mean thing to do to journalists in the age of uh enemy of the people but what are you gonna do the boomers are having their last round of fun i guess or maybe not their last maybe they'll live to 120 at this point um (laughs) But uh, but it's certainly interesting, and and if you're and if you're a music fan or a Dylan fan, you know the footage is just incredible. I, I already knew a lot of this music by heart, but seeing it, there's one scene where um, where Bob and Joan sing um, "I Shall Be Released," which is one of my favorite just like yes. recordings ever, and. On the on the Rolling Thunder CD, you can hear her say something at the beginning, but it's not really clear what she's saying because you can't really understand. You don't know what she's resp- responding to. But in the film, you realize somebody in the audience says, "What a great couple!" Because they had they were such they were a big couple in the '60s, and then Dylan dumped her, and then they didn't see tour together. And by the way, Joan Baez is principally responsible for making him famous in the first place. She was a huge folk music star and said to everybody, basically, like, you have to listen to this guy. He's a genius. Um, so for them to be singing again was a big deal in the mid-70s. And um, and so there's somebody in the audience says, what a great couple. And suddenly I understood what Joan was saying in this recording. I've listened to a thousand times. She goes, don't make myths, couple. <laughs> couple of what? And then they start singing, and Bob is so uncomfortable and she reaches up and puts her hand on the back of his neck in this incredibly like tender moment, and they sing the song together, and it just shed a whole new light on that song for me. So setting aside whatever the hell Bob is doing to torture us all, and, and Marty and everybody, um, anybody's trying to get a straight answer about things, it's a really cool film in terms of just the music and, and the scene, and there's like Joan, Joni Mitchell playing Canyon for maybe the first time ever with Roger McGuinn, and Bob Dylan just like, dutifully strumming guitar you know at a party at gordon lightfoot's house it's just like it's it's bananas it's it's really cool it's it's fun but i'm still kind of (laughs) overcoming my uh whatever you want to call it realization of what the what was happening in the film 
Something else that um, that Glenn Kenny said on Twitter about all this is that it's kind of heartening that Martin Scorsese can still piss people off in this way because you think of him as such an elder statesman at this point. And I, as I was saying before we started recording, I am always anti-prank, but I do like that uh, you know there's some some spry uh, prankster-ness in Scorsese left too. It's true. I mean, because remember, you know, Marty of the '70s was a um, was a naughty boy, uh, big time, and now he's. Uh, <laughs> You know, he's like in a tuxedo with white hair at the tavern on the green at the after party last night. And you just he doesn't look like somebody who's capable of just like screwing with everybody's heads. But that's what he was doing. It was was, people were realizing it at the premiere party last night. Like, wait a minute. This whole story where Sharon Stone claims that she met Bob when she was a teenager is all made up. It's fake. And so uh, and so I guess good for him that he's still, you know, he can still mess with people's heads and be a rebel. And good for Sharon Stone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I didn't really know that this documentary was coming, but um, here it was, and there was a splashy premiere and a party, and, you know, um, and it's like, well, I guess Martin Scorsese is really just in the Netflix business now. I mean, this is he's yeah. got another movie coming out with them later this year that, you know, everyone's kind of freaking out about, and, you know, they got him, it looks like, because they're yeah. letting him make weird documentaries that have a fictive element to it, and, like, you know, maybe, you know, whoever else isn't going to release that movie, so... You know, yeah, and I don't know. I don't know how many people end up watching something like this. There's obviously a big Dylan audience. You know, Dylan is a big business, but it does seem like Netflix wants to be in the Martin Scorsese business too. And and like, they clearly like to do these big splashy, you know, sort of just massive. Like, like getting Bob to do anything is really hard, and so you know they like to show off in a way that they can pull yeah. stuff off like that, right? It's a flex. It's just a flex. It's a flex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, flex. it's not a documentary. It's a flex. <laughs> it's fine. But but like I said, I think it will be. You have to think it will be in consideration for awards. You know, um, especially I guess when they did something inventive slash very trolly. <laughs> Bob Dylan might have been the original troll when you think about it. Well, it's interesting because he 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 was. I think he was. I think he was the victim of one of the first like troll mob actions, but it happened in mass media. So it took place over like two years instead of like one day where the entire folk world decided that like they, he had committed, you know, ideological and aesthetic treason. Bob Dylan got canceled. He got kind of (laughs) canceled. And I think that it wounded him and it, and it sort of affected him a lot, but he was always a trickster and a liar. I mean, you know, the name is fake. He told everybody he was from someplace he wasn't from like, he he always made up a lot of stuff, um, but yeah, he gets the last laugh. He is the ultimate super troll. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the sort of unofficial biopic about him, Todd Haynes is I'm not there, is also a very tricksy, shape shifty kind of movie. So maybe there's just no actual way to get a direct sort of portrait of him because he yeah, because he obfuscates that. But what's extra weird and why this troll is extra crazy is that Martin Scorsese did do one of the most straightforward like biographical documentaries of him right. in 2004 uh, or 5, uh, No Direction Home. So, um, you know, which is... So it's like to do that and then do then, this one yeah. and be like, actually, it's a movie with a bunch of fiction and it is... <laughs> I, I salute them, but I'm I'm a little bit still hurting. Frost, frostily, yeah. a frosty salute, <laughs> a frosty salute. Credit. a frosty salute to Marty and Bobby. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
Okay, now we're going to close out the episode by listening to Joanna's interview with Manny Jacinto of The Good Place. Joanna, you talked to him last week, just a couple days before the news broke, that The Good Place is ending after the upcoming season four. And you guys you know, caught back up to talk about that as well. But, um, I mean, so he's obviously great. Uh, the show is obviously great. How are we feeling about it ending, especially after having this interview? I'm actually feeling really good about it. Um, like, you know, not in a, I don't like this show and I don't want it to be on anymore, but so Manny Jacinto who plays that lovable dope, Jason Mendoza. It's funny cause <laughs> so this is an interview in two parts. This is the part of, there's an interview that we did before the news broke that the good place is ending. And then the interview we did after I found that out. And then I went back and listened and he was like, for however long we may be on the air. I was like, Ooh, good. You knew it was ending when you told me that. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, that's your job. Um, anyway, it, this he, is the he, prank he, episode or whatever. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but he talked a lot about what that final season will be, and he compared it to a Nicholas Sparks movie. So, wow. um, you know, get your tissues ready, I guess. But he also made the pitch that, like, you know, what this show has done and what a lot of Mike Schur's work does, you know, because Michael Schur does not only The Good Place, but Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, Parks and Recreation, et cetera, et cetera, is cast in a way that really breaks through a lot of the boxes that we put various people in. And so, um, you know, for, for Manny Jacinto, um, to play the like dopey hunk, which is usually, um, you know, a blonde white guy, I think has really opened up opportunities for what he can do next as an actor. Um, he's going to be in the new Top Gun movie. So that's like, that's a great next move for the guy who plays Jason Mendoza. Wait, between this and the anecdotes about Miles Teller at Cannes, we're like having endless Top Gun viral marketing. I mean, show. let's do it. Get ready. Uh, <laughs> I feel the need for speed. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and and then he's just excited sort of about the opportunities that that kind of um, thinking outside the box casting, I guess, will present. He also talked a little bit about Crazy Rich Asians and Always Be My Maybe on Netflix and what that's sort of doing for for Asian actors in Hollywood in terms of opportunities. So, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling kind of I mean, I'm you know, I want to dive into the interview, but I, I'm feeling I'm feeling good about a show ending on its own terms. I felt a little mixed about this latest season three of The Good Place. It felt like it was wandering a little in the middle. And so I, but I'm really now looking forward to season four, the final season, because I feel like it will just be an intentional drive to the end. Um, and those are my favorite seasons of televisions to watch. Yeah, I think I feel better just knowing that NBC has signed this massive deal with Mike Schur that he's going to keep making shows uh, and we'll have a lot coming from him because it's his voice, I think, more, that I would miss more than The Good Place itself, and which I, I like you. I think I'm excited to see them end it the way they want to. Well, Joanna, let's listen to your interview with Manny Jacinto. Hey, Joanna. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Let me start by asking you something that I like to ask good place actors which is okay how much of an expert are you now in moral philosophy and if not an expert what is something that you've learned from the show um i am definitely not an expert in moral philosophy now i wish i was like <laughs> so yeah. many i was like we've gone through like yeah i guess it's almost four seasons now and you'd think i'd be you know, teaching a class on philosophy, but no, it's like, it's so difficult. I, mean, I don't know. I, I think I have the, I get to, I guess I get to kind of get away with not having to know as much because of my character, if that makes any sense, because yeah, I'm the guy that, you know, has to, has to like, you know, bring in the fart jokes or just the jokes in general, just to make everybody laugh and take their minds off of that, of the heavy stuff in the show. 
and whether it be in the show or just talking to, to Mike and the actors, it's, is I feel like maybe the question about what makes a truly good act, like what makes a truly good person. And I, I think I've come to believe that if you can really do something good for, for somebody, like whether it be a good action or, you know, volunteer or something, and without having to try and look good, that makes you a truly good person. Like if, if you can do something um, without... Like, because Mike talks about how, or Ted talks about, like, uh, going to Starbucks and tipping the, the barista and then not actually waiting for the barista to look at you before you tip them. In terms of what truly, what makes a truly good person is, is, is not seeking any reward when you, you do something good for other people. In that, you mentioned that Jason's role in the show is to sort of bring this lightness, this like adorable immaturity to a sometimes heavy sitcom. But so much of the show is about this progression of these characters, this emotional growth of these characters. What is it? What are the challenges of keeping Jason sort of like pure and childlike and fun, which we love for him to be, and see him grow along with the other characters? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's, I mean, the biggest thing is, uh, from the beginning, it was, has always been trying to to stick to the truth. Um, and um, that could be interpreted in many ways, but I, I guess what I'm, the point that I'm trying to get across is that trying to stick towards, like, the truth that Jason feels, like, to not play towards the, the joke or to try and be funny, but really... Um, you know, dig deep into what Jason really feels and and <laughs> speak his his truth, whatever whatever that may be, um, and kind of figure that out and and stick to that because that way it won't come off as as fake. Mike, I remember when I first started on the show, I'd kind of do all these crazy things and like, um, and I'd I'd say the joke in a way that wouldn't really make sense, but I remember just Mike coming up to me and just like. Um, that's great. That's great, and everything. But like, let's just make sure that you know it's it's truthful in the in the way you say it, because people can tell right away when you're trying to be funny or when you're trying to to make them laugh. And and the emotion behind behind like the words and even within the joke, then that makes it just so much more impactful. And in terms of like trying to make Jason uh, continuously grow emotionally, I think I mean that's a credit to. Uh, I mean, a big part of that is 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 the, like the writers. They're they're constantly giving me different challenges and 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 just kind of studying uh, from from how Jason went from from season one to to now in season four and the things that I'm kind of doing. I can see that the writers have been mindful. I was reading an older interview of you where you were talking about how maybe contrary to what it might seem on screen, you're the most serious person on set. And the reason you gave, and this was a while ago that you gave this interview, the reason you gave was that you're sort of afraid of losing your job. So you like wanted to focus on that. Is that, is that something that's gone away now that you're in season four? And if so, when did you stop worrying that like any second, this opportunity might go away from you? Oh no! I don't. I don't think it's ever gonna go away. It's always gonna be there. <laughs> no. There's gonna be in the back of my mind. Like I'm just, you know, I swear they have like a, a backup Jason Mendoza ready to go sometimes. But but maybe I mean, maybe yeah. uh, Darcy can just play 
Jason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, going forward. <laughs> yeah, I knew they shouldn't have done that episode. I knew I knew I shouldn't. She hope I, I hope she didn't do that that well. But um, yeah, like she, um, she might even yeah she might end up taking all our jobs at by the end of the day. But um, yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I think I think that fear itself <laughs> uh, is good, you know, because like for me, it kind of it pushes me to to do better and like to, to be ready and. Um, and, to, you know, to, to not make a fool of myself, even though my job is to make a fool of myself, which is really ironic and weird, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't think it'll ever really go away in that sense, which is, which is a good thing for you in season three. What was your favorite, I don't know, storyline or episode for you personally to work on? Um, <laughs> when we get to go back to Florida, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's always that's always a fun time. I, last season, I, we got you got to meet my dad, um, Donkey Doug, and then uh, we got to play not only with uh, Mitch Narito who plays Donkey Doug, but also with one of my favorite human beings ever, Eugene Cordero, who plays Pillboy. Yeah. And oh man, that day went by so fast. We just we just had so much fun. And yeah, like I, I keep saying, the producers keep joking as to that we should have our own little sitcom or spinoff or something, like the Florida Men's Project or something like that. <laughs> well, I know you've talked about how, like, you know, your role and Eugene's role, and really subvert the stereotype of a lot of the, um, you know, Asian characters that we've seen on television up until The Good Place. And uh, you've also talked about, um, you know, the kind of roles you would be offered before The Good Place and how different they were from Jason. Now you're going to be in the next Top Gun movie. This, like, are you seeing a difference in the kind of roles that are coming at you in this post sort of Good Place experience? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. There is definitely this this shift that's happening. I mean, I just, I, def, I just, I think it was yesterday that I just watched um, "Always Be My Maybe" with Randall Park and Ali Wong, and yeah, you know, like you, I don't think I've actually seen uh, a rom com with two Asian leads. I mean, other than Crazy Rich Asians, but I mean that that was just last year. I mean, it's you know, there's this emergence of uh, diverse talent, whether it be you know, Asian or not, like it's, it's a great time to, to, to have these diverse stories. And I mean, I'm, I am so lucky. I'm so lucky to be doing this at this time because I mean, it wasn't easy for, for the, for my heroes and the people that I looked up to, to, to go through the industry during their time. Um, and there's definitely a lot more opportunities out there. Um, and it's just like, it's just a matter of all these things coming together from, from, diverse talents wanting to tell their stories to so many different outlets um, willing to, to produce these, these, these stories. I feel like everybody has a, either like a program or like a streaming service or um, it's, it's so much easier to bring stuff out there. And yeah, it's just this combination of things coming together that, that has allowed this shit to happen. And I'm just so lucky and grateful to be um, kind of in the middle of it, of it all. Um, yeah. And I know you've talked about not really being a comedy guy. Is there, you know, beyond, I don't know, getting to be in a Tom Cruise Top Gun movie, is there an opportunity, a role, something that you'd love to do in the future that maybe people wouldn't think of as a, you know, a natural fit for you from watching you in The Good Place, but like something that you would like to flex into? Um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, almost anything and everything at this point. Like, um, like I mean, I, like just talking about always being like, maybe I would love to do a rom com, whether it be yeah, um, or or even just a serious drama, a serious um, love story, like oh man, like like the Notebook or something, or. <laughs> Um, you know, like, uh, yeah, I would try like to do anything and everything at this point, like, cause there's just so much out there and so much opportunity for, it. um, I mean, like, I love, I love Jason, Jason Mendoza. He's always going to be in my heart, but you know, I definitely want to be able to flex some different skills, um, and some, and yeah, kind of use some different muscles, um, other than, you know, being the innocent, lovable uh, dummy that he is, uh, but yeah, um, yeah, I think maybe straight off the top of my head, maybe some sort of rom-com or some sort of notebook type of feel movie, but, but who knows? We'll see. I'm going to, I'm going to start my online campaign for you to be in a Nicholas Sparks, the next Nicholas Sparks movie. It's going to be starring you. Nice. I'll give you 5%. Okay. Deal. Um, all right. So you, uh, you get to work with all these great comedians. Um, I've heard Jason Manzoukas talk about how he likes to try to make people break when he works opposite on the, uh, them on the good place. What, who yeah. is, who is the hardest for you to work with and like get through a scene with a straight face? Oh, um, probably Jason. Jason Manzoukas. Oh man, I was just listening to uh, to him on a podcast as well, and like he he when he when he comes into a show, he doesn't necessarily have to abide by the same rules because um, the the producers and the writers kind of know what he's all about. Because because with with Manzoukas, he's like he'll come in and sometimes they mainly just hire him to, to just to be nuts and to, to come up with all these different things and not to necessarily stick to the script. So he's always coming at us with different outlines or just different ways of seeing things. And there's an unlimited supply and pool of it because of his improvisational abilities. Cause he's a freaking legend in that, in that <laughs> arena. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think whenever I, I have, or we have scenes with, you know, Derek, Maximum Derek. It's, um, we don't know what to expect, and it's always a whirlwind. You've mentioned elsewhere that this season four is maybe like a bit more emotional than, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's The Good Place has always been an emotional show, but it's maybe even leaning more into the emotion than previous. Um, I know you can't tell me anything about it and I'm not here to like try to have the season, whatever the season four surprise is spoiled for me. But um, I'm wondering if working on something like that, working on uh, season four being a little bit more emotional satisfies any of that need that you have to be in a Nicholas Sparks movie or or, or a rom-com, like, are you getting to do some of that in this season? Oh, man, maybe that's, maybe that's where it's coming from, to be honest. Who knows? Like, maybe that's the reason why I want to dip into the, the Nicholas Sparks world. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I, I am so thankful to, to Mike and the writers because, like, with, with this character and, you know, in the wrong hands, like, it could just, be super flat and go, you know, just go the wrong way really fast. And, but, uh, like with these writers and with Mike and with the people that we get to work with, they've made sure that they've given Jason more layers. Um, and, and, you know, I also try to do my best to give him more layers and, 
and not just, you know, uh, make them a, the, the Florida idiot, but really try and like, you know, sympathize and empathize with, with what he's going through. And, um, the, they've been a major, you know, proponent of that to, uh, to help me kind of bring that out of, out of Jason Mendoza. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, looking at the season, what we've done so far, I think, I think, and especially, yeah, maybe towards the middle and, and, and it, it can kind of tickle that Nicholas Sparks bone a little bit. And, um, yeah, I, that's yeah. It's funny you should mention me. That's where all these feelings of wanting to to be um, the next Ryan Gosling comes from. Well, you know. <laughs> the next Ryan Gosling or someone dying. Maybe the next Mandy Moore. Someone dying from cancer or something. Yeah, And I I know that you uh, you and and William Jackson Harper and Darcy and Jamila like who didn't do a ton of this like level of work before the show started. I know you refer to yourself as like the babies of the show. What, (laughs) what has, you know, working with Ted Danson, working with Kristen Bell, working with Michael Schur, these people who have been through the ringer a bit more, like what's the, I don't know, number one thing you've learned from these, these veterans. Be kind. That's like, that kind of just reigns throughout. And that's kind of the theme of, yeah, it's, it, it kind of resonates throughout this whole show. Just, you know, be, there's a reason why people love working on, uh, on shows by Mike Shirt. Like when I talk to the writers and, and the crew people and the people that have worked with them for years, like it's like Mike creates an environment that's so, um, so like easy and, and familial and, um, and like, there's no ego and no divas and you can just do your best work and you're allowed to have fun. And he like, he, and it's because of the fact that Mike is just so grounded and, and genuine and kind. And, and that just, it, 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 it goes, it, it passes on to, to the, the leads that he chooses, like with, with Kristen and with Ted and like Ted is like, and Kristen as well. Like they constantly remind themselves how how lucky we lucky we are to be able to just come to work and play and like we get fed like we we get told (laughs) what to do and we get to play pretend for for work which is crazy and you know we're we're constantly like yeah that that kind of mindset that kind of mindset of being kind to people and you know to 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 be humble and and genuine is, is always resonated throughout these these four years and i mean it's going to be the biggest thing that i take away um from 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 the whole experience no matter how long we go for so it's uh yeah it's um that's probably the biggest thing that i've that i've learned and continue to try and and exemplify um because of my peers it's it's uh yeah it's to, to be kind to, to others thank you so much for for chatting with me i really appreciate it Of course. No, thank you, Joanna. This was super fun. Quick note from Joanna here. Between the time that we recorded that interview and now, it was announced that The Good Place would be ending its run after four seasons. They are currently shooting that final season now. So we were able to grab Manny really quickly between shooting scenes to give us his impressions of what it meant to have the show coming to an end and how all of that emotion around it will inform the final season. So here are his answers to those questions. Yeah, I mean, well, we were told, um, like, sometime last year, actually, 
Uh, it was like, um, I don't know if it was November or possibly even December. Like a, a nice little Christmas gift from Mike to oh. let us know that oh. it's going to be over. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, I think when, when, he, when I first got the email, we all kind of knew that it wasn't going to, you know, go on for forever. Um, it wasn't the type of show like The Office or Parks and Rec because there's just so much story and, you know, it's very much uh, story driven and we burn through so much of it uh, each each episode. There's definitely a bit of heartbreak for sure. Um, and uh, now on set, like I think a lot of people are definitely taking it all in and cherishing moments with each other. And um, there's definitely a, a, a greater familiar uh, like family like vibe, even more so than before, because we know that it's, you know, our last possibly our last time that we're going to all work together, um, whether it be through with the cast or the crew. Um, I mean, that people are definitely taking a lot more photos <laughs> to try and cherish these moments and remember them. Um, and I definitely know that when, when Mike announced it as well during the, the uh, FYC panel, um, it kind of, like, I remember going home and being like, oh man, this is actually coming to an end. Like, it was a reminder that, you know, this is finite for all of that it was worth. It was definitely a, a story that had uh, an ending. And I think Mike and all of us agreed that it's the best way to to, to go out, you know, uh, to go out on our, on our own terms, if anything. I actually really like watching, not in a morbid way, but like watching a final season of a show that has really decided it's going to end. And it just feels so much more purposeful headed towards that ending. You also mentioned, you know, when you talked to me before that this was a very emotional season, how much of that emotion is tied to your own personal emotion or is it baked into the story um, of, of sort of where Mike wants to bring this all to a head? Like with something coming to an end, um, naturally, your character or or the actor personally will always feel some sort of heartache or or uh, um, or some type some type of like sadness um, because especially when you know when you love the show so much and when you love working with with all these people so much. Um, so I think it's I think we can't help but leak some of that. Uh, some of that sadness or heartbreak into into our characters when we do it, but it, it'll also inform the scenes. Yeah, it's a uh, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's um, it'll be yeah. I mean, I hope it'll get a better reception than uh, than season eight of Game of Thrones or the last season of Game of Thrones. But we'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't you can't please everybody. But I think with what Mike has come up with and what we from what we've heard. It's uh, the general consensus is that it's, it's definitely a great ending and a good way to go. So that does it for this week's episode. Thank you as always for listening. Please keep finding us, interviewing us, and telling your friends about us and uh, talking back to us. You can find us all at VanityFair.com. You can read Mike's review of the Bob Dylan documentary and many other things. Uh, you can find us all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard. Rye Laws. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for Netflix's new slogan for their release of The Irishman goes to Mike Hogan. It's Marty, it's Bobby, it's, you know, 